Chris. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 38. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Hassan Oswald. Oswald started his professional career as a cameraman for National Geographic's film Hell on Earth, The Fall of Syria and the Rise of ISIS. His directorial debut, Higher Love, about the opioid crisis in New Jersey, arrived in 2020. He's also covered the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, drug trafficking, homelessness in Philadelphia, and genocide in Iraq. You can follow everything No Prize from God at noprizefromgod.com. You can keep up with me at ryanjdowney.com. And you can support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and writing a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform of choice. So here it is, my conversation with filmmaker Hassan Oswald. This is No Prize from God. Let's talk about film and, you know, I would love to know a little bit about your background and growing up, what the movies were that you first encountered that made you not only fall in love with movies, but also get that idea of like, okay, this isn't just something I love. This is something I need to participate in. I want to create, I want to make these. Yeah. So actually that's, that's part of, uh, you know, the cool, the cool, the cool part of how, how this all happened. Um, I went. I, I come from an educational background. It's called the Waldorf Education, uh, mm-hmm. where we actually weren't allowed to. We didn't have a TV in our house for a while. Uh, we weren't allowed to watch movies or any or TV until you know my my early teens. And then I think we were at. I think I was allowed like what like sixth seventh grade like one movie a month and some t- like sports on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really didn't have any background in film. Um, wow. I remember I used to go to to Blockbuster, and every time I'd rent. Uh, I'd go in there with these big ideas that, you know, I'm going to watch something new. And every time I come out of there with Waterworld. Uh, <laughs> and so, like, I had the worst background <laughs> in film. Um, and even, you know, when those restrictions, you know, obviously I went to, uh, you know, high school. There's no restrictions on media or college. I went to a big university. There's no restrictions. Um, I still didn't, I, I didn't ever, you know, think that this was the avenue I was going to end up traveling on. Um, I graduated from college. Uh, I did do some journalism classes and some creative writing, which mm-hmm. I think, you know, I'm now pulling on, but I graduated college uh, and I left for or Thailand. Uh, I became an English teacher in Thailand and then uh, in Germany for a little while and then Barcelona. So I was gone about seven years. Wow. Um, and I think this, well, I know this is kind of the genesis of, of where you know my my love for film started uh we this is when gopros started you mm. know, first becoming big and mm-hmm. um we our group had one and we traveled all around southeast asia and we would just film everything not knowing what we we're doing and then you know iMovie uh is so easy to use comes on every laptop so we would just make stupid little travel videos uh, but i started really falling in love with it and so um you know we're at a point where you can learn it pretty much anything on YouTube. So I learned film editing on YouTube through tutorials and, you know, some wow. podcasts, a few books, but predominantly yeah. just through, you know, uh, 
downloading the uh, the at first, as I said, iMovie, but uh, eventually getting to Final Cut Pro and Premiere, uh, and just Googling and YouTubing every little question I had. So that's how I learned editing. Um, those travel videos started to get more polished. One made it to the front page of Reddit. That was kind of like my first uh, first taste of, of, of you know, press. Maybe I could do something with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, first taste of of like uh, of um, yeah of other people thinking that maybe, you know, I have a little bit of skill. Mm -hmm. um, and so then that turned into when I was in Barcelona, I quit my teaching job and um, tried to make it with travel films, which is, uh, as I found out, really, really difficult. But it still really helped me. It helped me hone my craft. Um, I got into cameras and lenses, uh, still just learning from YouTube. Mm. I thought about film school, but I didn't have, you know, $5,000, let alone $150,000 to go to film school. Yeah. So, um, I applied to do my master's in education back in New York, got into Columbia, um, left Barcelona, came back to New York, and at you know the midnight hour was like, I, I can't do this. Like my, my passion is no longer teaching. I wanna do film. Um, so I bought a, a 4K camera, um, mm -hmm. the only one I could afford. And that was kind of like the only, the first real investment I made um, everything else, you know, when I was traveling, that was crappy little uh, off-brand uh, knockoff type stuff like lenses and whatnot. And so this one, I, you know, I dropped a few thousand on a nice body um, and I went to, uh, so there's, there's, I was doing this travel show and it was going really well and then not well, and I was falling out of love with it. So I did my last, the last episode in Lesbos, Greece. Uh, it's this little island and this, I don't know, it's been in the news a lot because this is um, kind of the the epicenter of the Syrian refugee crisis, you know, back now five, six years ago. They were yeah. crossing over from Turkey into Greece and a lot of them were drowning. And I heard that on the news. And so I thought, you know, let's take a little stab at something more documentary based, not travel, kind of cheap travel yeah. films. So I went over there with a GoPro, this new camera, and... Um, made uh i think it was a 12 minute short uh first time i'd ever really you know done anything documentary based and uh, a few stephen fry emma thompson uh a few big names emailed and tweeted it and national geographic saw it and hired me to, <laughs> to uh, work on their middle eastern uh film which came out in 2017 uh and so i worked for them for a year at goldcrest is the name of the the, uh, the studio I worked for, the post studio. Mm -hmm. So for National Geographic through them. And um, I learned a lot, uh, but um, like a month in, I was very freelancey. And so I thought, all right, I know I know enough to, to do my own thing. Obviously I was very naive. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna direct my first film. And so I just went to Camden, New Jersey, uh, where Higher Love takes place. Um, and you know, it's arguably America's most most dangerous city for like the last <laughs> decade. Uh, yeah. And uh, I thought this would be a good place to go with no budget, no crew, very little experience, um, and just make my first film. Because, you know, I didn't have a budget. I think I had like $700 in the bank, um, but it was only an hour and a half from New York City. So I could drive there. Uh, I, my dad's from the region. So my dad's actually from Camden, and a lot of his family remain in the area. So mm. I could stay with relatives. So I kind of had this zero budget strategy of making a film uh, and just kind of went for it and didn't think it would end up this well. But uh, yeah, it's exciting. Wow. Well, and going back a little bit, isn't it amazing, you know, for all of the ills of technology and social media and, you know, for all, for all the ways that we can criticize streaming giants and all of that, that, you know, when we were kids, you know, I think we're both old enough that we're of a generation where if we wanted to learn to play guitar, we had to find like a guitar teacher in our neighborhood or at, you know, the guitar shop and take lessons and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe get some, you know, crappily dubbed bootleg videotapes from somebody else. You know, the idea that the means of, of production and creativity are so much more accessible in terms of software and hardware, but also that you can, like you said, really just go online 
and you know it, like what what an easy leap it is even even to go from iMovie to Final Cut Pro or what you know it's yeah. I mean even uh, gosh 15 almost 20 years ago uh, when I, I started it I used to be a reporter for MTV News and at MTV they sent me to an Apple certified college course uh, to learn Final Cut Pro and yeah the idea that just a couple of years after I took that course, this became stuff you could teach yourself. Uh, yeah. With YouTube it, videos and all of that. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it's so true. Pretty amazing. And I think that's, so, I mean, the film industry in my, you know, I get a lot of flack or at least, you know, um, I don't know if it's, it's probably a lot of it's in my head, but you know, I didn't really pay my dues. Um, a lot of the film industries, you know, it's a hierarchy that, uh, that they, you know, the old heads kind of have kept in place, in my opinion, uh, that makes it, you know, it makes it a slow, arduous grind to get to, get to you know, to direct a film or, or anything. But I think that's being turned on its head now because everything is so accessible. So I, yeah. I think it's really a positive thing that, you know, anyone can technically, uh, you know, put in, all the hours and everything and they, they can kind of launch themselves into a career mm -hmm. like this. You know, it's not just, it wouldn't just be filmmaking and, you know, documentary filmmaking is very DIY. So it does cater to that. Um, but yeah, like you said, you could learn how to guitar, uh, play guitar. You could uh, learn how to bake. You can, uh, you can kind of, it's like the millennials dream that you can start that passion project uh, that could turn into your next career. Uh, and this is the first time that that's been accessible to everyone. Yeah, when you think about how once upon a time in the history of film, <laughs> you know, in the last couple decades, even Robert Rodriguez or Kevin Smith or, you know, some of these folks that got their start with the credit cards and, and you know, this yeah. DIY maverick renegade style, those were anomalies. Those were the exceptions to the rule. And now the barrier to entry is just crumbling. And also if you can make something on your own and find an audience, then the gatekeepers and the institutions, as you said, which are very much still in place, they, they have to start paying attention. You know, that's the, uh, yeah. the beauty of that, that you can make enough noise on the ground to where it's, it's, it becomes undeniable. Exactly, because you can, you know, anyone can have an audience, uh, whether it's, you know, marketing, I can't imagine what it, what it I mean, you know, we have a PR team, obviously, and, and whatnot, but um, Instagram page is free, Facebook is free, uh, you can get your product out there. YouTube is free. Um, so not only is, is it accessible to learn these skills, but you can get your, uh, get your dream or passion project out there to, you know, thousands, millions of views potentially. Indeed. Um, so let's talk about the, the genesis for the story of this film and, and knowing a little bit about, uh, you know, how it was made as you've explained and where it was made and, uh, you know, why you chose that particular area. Of course, you know, for me, growing up in Indiana and then living in California for the last 20 years, when I think about New Jersey, I think about The Sopranos, just probably because I've watched it through four or five times. <laughs> yeah. uh, so when you, when you say dangerous, I think, um, oh, yes, you know, stay away from the pork store. You never know what they're doing over there. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, tell me a, a little bit about the idea for how this story came together and, and why that particular environment and setting was important. And yeah. So, um, it didn't start out as, uh, I, I had mentioned that my dad, he, he's got roots in Camden, New Jersey. Um, and that when it, that's when it was, you know, the Sopranos, my dad is very, uh, that was his family kind of South ah. Jersey, uh, Italian, Running maybe, suits. Mom, maybe not <laughs> exactly. So that was it. And that was Camden, New Jersey. Um, and then, uh, the factories, you know, this kind of post-industrial or this industrial American dream came crumbling down. And it wasn't just, you know, as you know, it wasn't just Camden. It was Camden, Flint, Detroit, you know, it was America. Um, so that was where the genesis of the first uh, title of the film was Forgotten USA. So it was, and we actually, the first week, week we spent filming in Flint. So it was going to be episodic and around these cities. So that was um, the first kind of... Uh, pull I had to the city. Um, and then early on, as I, you know, I, and I mentioned, I, I chose Camden, honestly, because I could uh, shoot it because it was so close to my house and I had relatives in the area. Um, 
So that was, you know, in a very superficial manner, that's what got me to the city. But once I got there, you know, I knew I was staying for the long haul. Uh, the people are amazing. Um, and it didn't start out as an opioid project. Uh, it started out as kind of like a commentary on societal neglect in cities like Camden. Um, and so we, we, I knew that, you know, from my own experience with Camden, if, if you know about, if you're from the East Coast, you know about Camden, it's for a negative reason. Um, we used to drive uh, to my grandmother's for Thanksgiving or, or Christmas, and it was always, you know, right out of the movies, like lock the doors, don't stop. Uh, someone comes up to you in the gas station, uh, parking lot, asking for money, run. So it's this very neg uh, negative view, but also like it, it kind of instilled this morbid curiosity, honestly, in, in me that, you know, maybe I should go see that. Um, and what's interesting is, so we, uh, the title until rate, I think like the last week uh, was Below the Brine. Um, and it's after a poem by Walt Whitman, who's actually from Camden, uh, about a world that exists below the brine that nobody ever pays attention to. You know, there's mm. society, there's people, there's, there's uh, a whole world that no one ever looks, uh, looks at. And, and we, or I saw that that is Camden. Um, so I wanted to kind of take a look below the brine and, and see see what was going on in, in these kind of post-industrial American cities. And, you know, Camden's a, a perfect petri dish of everything that's going wrong in America. If it's going wrong with, in America, it's going wrong in Camden at a far exaggerated rate. Um, yeah. So it, it, it was just seemed like a good place to start. And then once I got there, it was, I was, uh, you know, I fell in love with the people and, and what was going on there. I would imagine, given your background in terms of not only the work that you've done, but just the places you've lived, the regions you visited, uh, you know, going from, you know, even just the juxtaposition of the Sopranos land of, of Camden, New Jersey, and, you know, Asia, and, uh, you know, as we're speaking right now, you're in Turkey. Um, how much did that geographical experience for lack of a better term multicultural experience how much did that inform the story that you were telling about this yes. beneath the brine yeah world? definitely um i spent you know i was lucky enough i had a bit of a, a wayfaring uh kind of like hippie upbringing um so i spent a lot of my time abroad uh, as a child and as a teen um and uh, through my adulthood as a uh, as a teacher um and it so even you know I didn't know it, but you know everyday conversations I'd have on the street um, what that was kind of the the foundation of being able to uh, uh, kind of peer into the lives of uh, everyday people that you see on the street um, and learn you know a little bit about them, whether that's in Camden or where I am now in Turkey or I've been so I'm on my way to Iraq and Syria right now um, for my for my fifth trip. Um, and these early days as kind of, you know, a kid on the road and, and then a young adult on the road um, made me very curious in this kind of slice of life. Uh, everyone has a story kind of uh, trope. So I was very inspired by, um, you know, Humans of New York, that the way that he could just stop someone on the street and take an ordinary picture and they could have, you know, the most uh, either heartbreaking or inspiring story. Uh, and you wouldn't, you, you walk by a thousand, two thousand of these people a day. So, um, yeah, my travels definitely, uh, led me to, uh, my current, my current kind of pure verite or, or verite type of, of filming where, um, you, you try to see a, a societal problem or, or a personal problem through their eyes without kind of commentary. It's just like raw kind of conversational, uh, type film that I try to, uh, you know, and I'm very new. So it is often this kind of, as I say, sloppy verite, but, um, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Subgenre. <laughs> yeah. Subgenre. Um, but I think, you know, I think that there's pros and cons of that. Uh, you know, there's, I didn't have any budget, so I had no choice, but to learn this sloppy verite that, uh, you know, comes, comes through as pretty raw and pretty honest. Um, and I, I do think that I, I learned that from my early days and uh, early days of travel and living in different communities among different peoples and different cultures. 
Yeah, I, I can only imagine how much that would that would inform. So, of course, you know, because this is no prize from God, I'm gonna. I'm very curious about, you know, the ideas that you were exposed to, especially with that wayfaring, bohemian hippie kind of upbringing. Yeah, uh, the ideas you were you were exposed to about, um, you know, life's big questions and the bigger picture and what does it all mean and, you know, the humankind's uh, search for meaning as it were, uh, you know, what, what kind of stuff were you brought up with and what sort of things turned you on and, and how has that evolved in yeah, your uh, creative career? Yeah, certainly. So I, I've actually had a pretty, um, so my name's Hassan, uh, my, Hassan Oswald. So obviously that's like a, a bit of a, a mismatch right away. Uh, that, uh, that alone made me want to invite you on. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that alone gets me stopped at every border. Um, so it's, it's, uh, my, my parents, they are both from America. They're both raised Catholic. Um, uh, they both in their mid twenties were, uh, wayfaring hippies. As mm. I said, I was brought up, uh, sure. so they have no one to blame but themselves that myself and my sister are <laughs> on the sisters are as on the road. Uh, but they, they, uh, met and were married in Istanbul. Uh, oh, wow. my father was a stage actor. And my mother was a carpet salesman in the Grand Bazaar. And they met uh, through kind of the same spiritual teacher. Uh, it was Sufi Islam, so the same shape. Oh, wow. yeah. uh, and so they converted to Sufi Islam in Istanbul and uh, then came back to New York where they raised myself and my two sisters uh, in a Sufi uh, Muslim household. So wow. it's a very... Uh, liberal, you know, my sisters and my parents, uh, my mother never, never wore a headdress unless they're in the mosque. Uh, my dad, you would never be able to tell, but you know, all of them did their prayers five times a day. Uh, wow. Myself, I, I was never, um, I'd say it's hard to explain because, you know, I always thought, saw it as a community. Um, I didn't even really identify it with uh, anything my parents were so, so, you know, gentle with it. And so, so loose with what I, what I chose to take into my life. Mm. You know, we did, I remember I, I did Ramadan. So the fa 30 days of fasting um, for probably until I was 16. Um, I would go every Saturday. That's the main day to the mosque. Um, but I, I never made my prayers. Um, I never, you know, participated in the Quran school or anything, but I was still a big part of the community and I hold it very dear to my heart. Uh, you yeah. know, we call them uh, aunts, uncles. Uh, it's still, you know, it's a place that I still feel very comfortable in when I am home. Um, so that was kind of the environment I was brought up in. Uh, I went to Catholic school. I went to Villanova University right outside of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, so I remember, I I would say right after 9-11, uh, I was in eighth grade. Um, and there was, of course, anti-Muslim sentiment. But it was, I probably, you know, over-exaggerated it into my, in my head. Um, and I, so I had a nickname, Sani. Uh, that's what my sisters called me, Hassan Sani. Mm -hmm. uh, and my Italian side of the family turned that into Sunny. And but still, no one really <laughs> called. No one really called me that. But I took yeah. Sunny. I'm laughing because it's cool. Because you know. Yeah, I took <laughs> I took Sunny and I changed my name to Sunny. Not legally, but so all of my university friends know me as Sunny. Oh um, sure. And that was a direct. You know, I would go first day classes. I'd go up to my teacher and say, "Hey, I'm with Sunny also, but I go by Sunny." Um, and it was a very, you know, not traumatic, but it was it was a thing for me. Like yeah. this I remember Hassan. seeing seeing an interview with a Barack Obama where he said, he said, yeah, you know, if my name would have been Barack Smith or uh, Barry Obama, you know, I might have had an easier time. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and of course, as we know, he, you know, college and everything, he went by Barry. Yeah, and I would imagine exactly. largely for the same sort of uh, ease of passage. Exactly. Ease of passage is a perfect way to put it. Uh, and again, I was probably exaggerated in my head. Uh, I went to, you know, it's a conservative Catholic school, but uh, nobody cared. At the end of the day, nobody cared. But it just took me a little while to realize that I, yeah. I wanted to fit in. Um, I wanted to, uh, you know, I thought people would care. And, you know, 10 years later, 
Um, I love my name now. Uh, and I think it's, you know, super cool that I have this unique name yeah. and I, I laugh about, you know, the, the, the lengths I went to, to hide my, uh, my name, uh, and to hide my religion. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm non-religious now. Uh, I do have this kind of pull back to spirituality and, you know, I, I have had some really good talks with my parents lately and, the, you know, they, you know, I'm getting really into meditation these last, you know, five years. Um, and they say, well, you know, that's what praying is to us. Um, you know, and Sufi is, you know, they're called the mystics. Um, so, you know, it is very, so maybe I am, you know, that was always there. And I just always kind of pushed it away because, you know, organized religion, organized religion. Sure. Um, and, and, mi- you know, and mysticism is, you know, a cousin of mystery. And that's something that yes. I'm learning more in adulthood. You know, I often talk about how I was spent such a long time on a quest for certainty, trying to answer all the questions and solve all the riddles. And I've, I've realized now as I've gotten older that it's, that's the wrong approach for me. Yeah. You know, and it's like I, I existing in the, in the mystery or some element of the mystery and the mystical side of it is so much more of a, a richer, fuller experience for me and being more open to things. I would imagine for your parents converting from Catholicism to not just Islam, but the Sufi side of it, you know, there's a lot of parallels there because when, I mean, for me, and and I, and I apologize to anyone listening that if this comes off like a gross generalization, but generally speaking, in my experience, you know, Sunni Islam or, or, or especially like the Wahhabi style that's practiced in like Saudi Arabia and, you know, it's very, uh, almost what we would associate as like monk-like, you know, like very much uh, kind of, you know, rigid and and not much artifice to it. Whereas I think the, the Shia side and especially Sufism can see sort of more of a parallel with uh, Catholicism and, and Protestantism, right? Where like non-denominational evangelical churches in America are very much um, almost on that, on that Sunni tip, you know, whereas Catholicism has the grandiosity and the, the ritual and the uh, stained glass windows and statues of saints and all that sort of thing. And I, I don't know, I guess in, in my mind, when I, when I hear that transition, it doesn't sound all that crazy to me. Like it seems like almost a, a natural, if there's a type of Islam that a, a Catholic is going to be drawn towards, yeah. it seems like that would, you know, there's, I don't know, there's, there's something Certainly. there. Yeah, yeah my dad all, my dad draws those uh, comparisons a lot as well. You know, he was in he was in the Catholic boys choir. He 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 thought he'd join the uh, uh, what is it the priesthood. Sure. Uh, you know, he was he was very involved in the church as a, a young boy, as a young boy, um, and he doesn't see the uh, the vast chasm that a lot of you know people would see that no. you know that, that uh, he's you know more and more trying to draw my attention to. <laughs> that's great <laughs> it sounds like your dad and i would get along too um yeah yeah and and of course there's the the whole idea that you know judaism and christianity and islam are all part of the same abrahamic tradition and originating from the same region and and so yeah so i for most of my life i haven't seen the big the same gulf that a lot of folks on either side of the equation tend to see but yeah especially sufism is really fascinating to me because it has that that more mystical, uh, poetic kind of, you know, uh, and, and maybe it's the, it's the film lover, music lover in me, but it seems like it's the more arty farty, <laughs> you know, no, for lack of a better is, yeah. term in a good way, you know? Um, yeah, no, it certainly is. And, uh, I mean, so it, I believe I, I know what used to be outlawed here in Turkey. Um, I, I don't know the current, I should probably look into that. But um, as a yeah. country, yeah. Um, lower your voice but, uh, in the lobby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I know that they, you know, they've gotten around that for, uh, you know, years, probably sure. you know, hundreds of years by, uh, they say it's performance art. So mm. they have, I used to go to the fully operational mosque here uh, and it was certainly a mosque and certainly praying, but they got around it by, you know, having the whirling dervishes and the you yeah. know, fantastic, uh, musical ensembles uh and they would say that it is uh performance art so you can't shut us down um yeah so yeah that that it's very prevalent in the uh 
seafood tradition. It's like a lot of martial arts that were developed by oppressed peoples where it's like, oh, we're just yeah, exactly. dancing. <laughs> this is just yeah. our dance. Exactly. <laughs> Never mind this knife that's in my waistband. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, yeah, and of course, you know, as you mentioned, um, Iraq, Syria, Iran, I mean, that whole region, you know, when, when we think about the authoritarian side of theocratic institutions, and not to say that it isn't hard and not to say that there isn't martyrdom and all sorts of, you know, uh, treacherous aspects to it. But, but yeah, I think people in the West don't quite understand how uh, pluralistic traditions do manage to persist and survive in those regions. I'm, I'm thinking in Iran about like the Baha'i faith, you know, while they're, they're persecuted and it's outlawed, uh, it exists, you know, like they're, they're there, they live there, they're in Iran, you know, um, and I always find that fascinating, the resilience of belief and the idea that you can persist with something even when it, it puts you in danger. You know? Yeah. Now, have you, um, do you know about the Yazidi faith at all? I've, I've heard the phrase, but I don't know much about it. Okay. So Yazidi, it's, it's, it's a religion, um, arguably the oldest religion. Uh, and it's in, you know, the northern Iraq, Kurdistan, okay. Syria. So like pre-Zoroastrianism uh, even? Yeah. Yes. Gotcha. Wow. Um, but but roots in that as well. Okay. So strongly related. So um, it's a small religion uh, uh, that non um, uh, I forget the word, but not based on a book. Um, gotcha. Okay. Right. They don't have a holy book. Um, yeah. Well, we all, yeah so, we often hear of, of people of the book, right? When right. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. So, so because of that fact, they were seen as devil worshippers. Um, well, throughout history. So they've had 73 genocides committed against them. Um, and the latest was uh, in, what, in 2014 when ISIS took over the region. And ISIS, because they weren't, you know, people of the book, they, you mm. know, ISIS was brutal to everyone, non-Muslims, uh, non, uh, you know, they still had the, the divide between Shia and Sunni. I was going to say, even if you were the wrong kind of Muslim. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't <laughs> yeah. just Yazidis, but because Yazidis weren't part of uh, uh any major religion, they, um, you know, by their own laws, were able to, to take uh, the women and children as slaves, the women mostly as sex slaves. Um, and they were, you know, they executed all the men immediately. So it briefly made the news during the Obama years when... Um, That's what I, I remembered uh, from. Yeah, and, so, I, and, I, and I feel ignorant for not having done more no, study into like what, what they believe and everything, because I knew that... Yeah, knew no, the that's... Genocide. It's very, no, it's it's pretty pretty unknown people, unfortunately, and uh, even more unknown religion. But um, they were surrounded by ISIS, and uh, they fled to Ma their famous mountain, Mount Sinjar. Um, and this was when it was all over CNN and everything. And then ISIS surrounded them and just tried to wait them out. It was the middle of summer, you know, 120 degrees. And then Obama made the decision to uh, drop um, water and aid and whatnot to them. But that didn't prevent, you know, there's 20 to 1,000 kill, uh, men killed immediately in their village. Uh, um, and then, as I said, the women and children were taken captivity. And this film that I'm doing now is about that. And then it's, it follows one family that all six of them were sold as slaves throughout the, the region. And um, they're trying to bring them back because there's still 10,000 Yazidis, uh, sorry, 3,000 Yazidis in ISIS captivity that, you know, no one ever... Uh, talks about it. There's no government action. There's nothing. And so there's well, a group well, uh, of... Donald Trump said he defeated ISIS. I thought it was over. Exactly. So <laughs> uh, that's the main theme of the film. Um, and you'll remember maybe that Donald Trump had uh, Nadia Murad. She's, she won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize and she's a Yazidi. So her, the book is uh, Last Girl and the movie was On Her Shoulders. But she had that very awkward encounter with Trump in the White House yes, where she yes. said, you know, please help we're still missing 3000 people. And he said, um, he said he didn't respond to it. And then he said, um, where are your parents? Like they didn't make the trip. And she's like, Oh, they were killed. Like I just said, my entire village yeah, was killed. I did see uh, that. So that's, she's a big representative of the Yazidi community. Okay. Um, Connecting the dots and, here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the film I'm working on. Uh, and that's a perfect example of a religion that uh, has uh, withstood, you know, by their counts, 73 genocides yeah. um, at the hands of everyone. So they're in this little nook in northern Iraq, Kurdistan, um, 
that, you know, they've been, uh, whether it's the Arabs, whether it's the Kurds, whether it's the Muslims, whether it's the Christians, whether it's, uh, you know, everyone has had it out for them seemingly over the last millennia. And, you know, they persist. Although I will say that um, the most recent atrocities uh, at the hands of ISIS have been especially uh, damaging to any hope of, uh, you know, the religion will continue, but um, the, uh, the majority of the population is now spread out. And because Yazidism is a religion that you cannot convert into and you cannot marry into, mm. um, they are, you know, they are finding uh, um, refuge in countries such as Germany. There's a big, uh, there's a big uh, population there, Australia um, and Northern Iraq now, but um, the, the diaspora of it is, you know, it could be some sort of death knell as far as uh, continuing this, this ancient religion. So they have been resilient, but it's, you know, the last one was especially damaging. So what would you say that you learned from the process of doing higher love and all of the DIY stuff that you've done and all of the travel? I mean, it sounds like it's, it's dovetailing, you know, Uh, magnificently into this project that you're working on now. Uh, you know, were, were there things that you learned during the last one about what to do, what not to do and yeah, know, so, be more efficient or, or whatever it is? So, I mean, I, I treated Camden and Higher Love as kind of my film school. I mean, I, it was everything I learned on the fly. Uh, and, you know, I, the Robert Rodriguez book, uh, Rebel Without a Crew, that was like the main inspiration of me starting my film career. It's like, oh, you know, I, I, could, I didn't know someone, that when I brought him up. <laughs> yeah, cool. so I, someone you know, uh, you can do that. And if he could do that, you know, 20 years ago, then I can certainly do it now when everything's more accessible. But, um, you know, I sold, I sold my blood in Camden twice a week. I maxed out credit cards. I would return cameras and editing systems to Apple and Best Buy on the 29th day of a 30 day rental. So I did like all these tricks to to make it work. Um, and that was my film school. Um, but it really set the bar, you know, I, 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 talk about this with my my therapist uh and you know he he sees a lot more and whether it was because i was so new to what was going on um but he sees a lot more you know evidence of something that might resemble ptsd from my time in camden than my time in in iraq and i totally agree with that um not only you know i remember the first interview i did in camden uh he said one of my interviewees said like um i forget the quote i'm gonna butcher it but something to the effect of like uh if you drop something someone off in camden they'll mistake it for iraq like why are we over there rebuilding iraq when we can't rebuild camden um so in that essence you know i started from somewhere that i would say i felt more at danger in camden most of the time and like wow. I said, it might be because I was just new to the game. Um, but, you know, I, it started out as this fear of you know, gun violence or street violence. You know, I thought I would get shot or mugged or whatnot, but um, it ended up being, uh, and a lot of this did dissipate, to be honest, like as I became kind of accepted in the community and mm-hmm. had my contacts and whatnot. Um, but still, you know, I fell through the roof of the Campbell soup factory uh, and only because I had my, my tripod extended, I didn't fall 40 feet onto concrete rhubarb. So like things like that, um, you know, I probably stepped on uh, 10 needles. Um, all of them missed actually puncturing skin. I got what I thought at the time was fentanyl squirted all over my face and my eyes from by one of the addicts, you know, saw countless uh, ODs, um, spent so many nights in these trap houses, these, you know, drug houses, abandoned factories. Um, and so just from like a, uh, a kind of perspective of earning my stripes and being ready for this film that I'm doing now in the Middle East, Camden certainly set the bar, uh, and prepared me for this. Uh, but also, you know, from a technical standpoint, it, it, uh, it forced me because I had no budget. It forced me to be creative. Uh, it forced me to become a filmmaker um, that could come over and do 
this film in, here in Iraq, you know, with yeah. a big budget, with, uh, you know, backing and everything. Uh, and without Camden, without having to really, really struggle in Camden, you know, every, everything I did there was a struggle. Um, you know, I thought I would just go there, film something, get funding. Boy, that didn't happen. Mm. You know, even so we're just finishing up this PR run. So we just finished our, that means we finished our festival run or we're finishing our festival run and like every step of the festival run, um, you know, coloring, uh, scoring, you know, it was such a learning curve. Um, and, you know, indie films are really, really hard. And it's really, really, really hard during a pandemic. Um, that was you know, my that featuring... was my next question. That was the, yeah. next, the last subject I was going to venture into was how, yeah, how, and, yeah. And to, to, before we even go there, I was going to say, uh, you know, as someone who grew up in the punk and hardcore scene and, you know, making my own fanzines and putting on shows with friends and starting bands and, you know, the, the network and community and culture and everything of that, I feel like it's informed so much of my adult life, my professional life, uh, because as, as you pointed out, when you've, when you've come from struggle and when you've made things from almost thin air, right. Then when you do have some resources or some tools or some people around you, uh, I, I feel like you're still, you're that much more efficient with it because you understand yeah. and appreciate what's really necessary and what isn't. And it, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like once, once, once you've done it the way that you did it, especially that never leaves you. Like that's going to help you. Even, yeah. You know, if someone gives you a hundred million dollars to make a superhero movie, that experience of making higher love is going to result in a much better film than someone who didn't do it that way. I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, I'm still shooting, you know, I'm filming this uh, even though I don't really need to on a micro budget. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm producing everything. I'm directing it, but I'm filming everything, producing everything, uh, and doing it, you know, very similar to how I did it in Camden. Uh, but with so many skills that, you know, this is, it's kind of second nature to me now. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's now it's a very attractive, you know, from a financial standpoint, it's a very attractive, uh, it was a very attractive project for someone, you know, a big network to take on because, uh, not only can, you know, I, I can wear a lot of hats. My team, mm -hmm. it's the same team as Higher Love. We can all wear a lot of hats. Um, but we're, we're small, we're efficient. Uh, and uh, we kind of maintain that hunger that, you know, no one believes that on, uh, in us, chip on our shoulders yeah. uh, that we learned in Camden and we carried that onto this. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's been great. It matters. I mean, that's, yeah. I also do a Metallica podcast, believe it or not. And that's like the story of Metallica, <laughs> you know, yeah, that like exactly. self-belief and no one's paying attention and all the, all the gatekeepers and barriers are, are closed. Yep. And we're just going to do it our way until people come to us instead of coming to them. Um, yep. So, yeah. So lastly, I did want to ask um, in the Middle East in particular uh, about the challenges of, of making any kind of film in the pandemic, uh, you know, and, and how might it, how might it differ where you are that, you know, cause here there's like some productions that have started up with all kinds of precautions and all of that. And you hear about, you know, productions in like Eastern Europe and different places that start and sometimes stop. And then bigger movies, like like the Jurassic park sequel started up and then stopped again and then started again. Yeah. But in the middle East, I, I have very little perspective on, where you're at right now, how the region's even handling the pandemic, sure. let alone how that uh, affects what you're doing. So if you can enlighten me on that, I'm super curious. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm, I'm back and forth. I live in Harlem uh, in, uh, you know, the upper half of Manhattan. Um, and I've been there. So I moved in January and I've only been there about two months as we round out the year here. Uh, that's because I got stuck in Iraq from February to let's see, February to July. Wow. I got locked, locked down. Um, so this was kind of before anyone, I went there, you know, we, so we premiered Higher Love at Slamdance at the end of January. Um, we won the grand jury and we were, you know, f flying so high. Uh, you know, we had this amazing run of, you know, big festivals coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had already six months filmed in the Iraq film. So we're already onto our next project, which is rare. Uh, to be that far ahead yeah. uh, while wrapping your first one. So we were doing really, really well. And then, you know, 
the world comes to a halt. And as you said, you know, it hits uh, film crews especially hard. So what that did for Camden, that moved everything, not Camden, for Higher Love, that moved everything online. Um, and, you know, we were a young, new team. So uh, we were really excited. These are our first festivals. We had, you know, started at all-time high at Slamdance, and then that came crashing down. So all these festivals got moved online, which was super disappointing. Um, you know, that, that affected our distribution deal. That affected everything. Uh, down the line, you know, it's still affecting everything to this day. We just, we, you know, we opened on VOD uh, yesterday, the third. Um, and so that's kind of like all the fallout has happened. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's kind of there. But as far as the production of Iraq, so uh, we left Slamdance and I came right to Iraq. Um, and this was right when the pandemic started and no one really knew what was gonna happen, but I, the, the story wasn't gonna stop. And I had already filmed for six or eight months. And you know, this is a legal case uh, and there was a rescue involved that like I had to be there. So I just took the risk uh, and it did not pan out. Although I got some great filming done because I was stuck, you know, with my subjects in Iraq mm -hmm. in lockdown, mm -hmm. which was good. Um, but yeah, all the borders shut. So, you know, uh, the Turkish border, the uh, it's a very, our, our film takes place in, you know, at least four of these countries um, and they were all completely shut. Uh, so, everything came to a screeching halt as far as storylines went, except for the one that I was stuck with in Iraq. Um, but I will say that we were lucky that we continued production. I continued filming, um, you know. And that's something you can do when you're smaller and agile exactly. and used to DIY. Yeah, it's not this monolithic right. giant machinery that has to stop and start. Right, so the liability issue is me, it's myself. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Uh, and <laughs> you know, the, the, it is tough, you know, I've, I was just starting after seven years on the road. Um, you know, I've lost, you know, a lot of, uh, relationships, uh, connections, sure. potential jobs by living, uh, on the road with my two cameras in hotel rooms with funny curtains in Ankara. <laughs> uh, so it did take a toll, but. I could do that and I could risk getting COVID. Uh, you know, I have no kids at home. I have, uh, I'm financially okay. Um, my parents are fine with whatever I'm doing. So I was at a point where I was a one person team and you know, we do have producers in New York, but I could go there. So I did get stuck, but it wasn't the end of the world. I pretended I lived, uh, I was reading, uh, what's that book? The one book uh, in the house was Mars. And so I was pretending that I was on Mars, like, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Uh, yeah, Matt, Matt, Matt Damon, Damon, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, I couldn't leave, I couldn't leave the hab, yeah. the habitat. Uh, I had to be very like careful if I did and like wear my suit, my mask. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I, yeah, I kind of, you know, I, I, on paper it was bad being stuck in lockdown in Iraq for four months, but really it wasn't that bad and it was good for the project and we were still in production. And I think that's why we were so attractive to a lot of these big, bigger names to come mm. on as co-productions or, or as possible distribution channels is because they all came to a grinding halt. You know, we are very indie docs still. Yeah. Um, but most, you know, most docs are not just someone. So I'm doing sound film production. Most films, that's at least one person. They have, you know, a field producer, a fixer, mm -hmm. especially in a place like Iraq, a fixer, a translator, a driver. And so they, those, those people get called home, but it was yeah. just me. So, uh, you're, you're getting, you're, you're the guy getting people to sign releases. Yes. <laughs> There's not a, a dedicated person following you around the clipboard. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I'm the guy, uh, organizing, uh, you know, these, meetings with uh isis members in <laughs> throughout these places yeah. Yeah. uh and wearing you know the secret cameras and and yeah. that kind of stuff so that was it's you know same as camden i was attractive to be to potential buyers and co-production yeah. partners um and now you know it seems like we're having an uptick worldwide i am a little so turkey is not they locked down immediately that's um back in you know back earlier in the year that's part of the reason i got stuck for so long because they're the main turkish airlines is the main partner that flies mm. iraq um now it seems wide open people seem to be doing well with masks so i'm waiting 
actually for a, a visa to come through from one of our characters. Um, and we'll be on a 24 hour bus ride, maybe as early as tomorrow um, wow. to Iraq. Um, and I know they do a, have a producer meeting me there. I know they do a COVID test at the border, um, but the, uh, the rate in Iraq right now is really, really bad. Uh, and, you know, of course, their health, healthcare, system, healthcare system was hanging by a thread pre-COVID. Yeah. So, you know, there's total lack of ventilators and whatnot. So I'm not so wor worried about, uh, you know, I'm in good health. I'm young. Um, I'm not worried about some kind of terrible illness. I am worried about, you know, testing positive and spending two weeks in Iraqi uh, hospital Yikes. at a border somewhere. Yeah. So it's definitely... Uh, um, you know, it's, there's a chance that could happen, but like I said, it's, we're lucky that we're one of the few productions that's, you know, currently filming. And if everything goes to plan, I could be, so after Iraq, I should be back in Iraq for about a week and then Syria for maybe five days and then back to New York mid-November. Uh, no, I was supposed to be back yesterday. So actually late November. Um, and we could wrap and a lot of people and teams don't, don't have that option. So we kind of, yeah. yeah, COVID messed with both of our productions, but you know, a lot of people had a, a lot worse off in the film industry. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remind to myself of that, of every obstacle and challenge that I've encountered through this process of how much worse other, you know, I, I, I already mostly work from home, for example, you know, I remind myself of that yep. all the time, like how that transition's been yeah. so crazy for people. And it's like, well, you know, um, me too. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, dude, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. Uh, this is super killer, even more than I could have expected. And uh, I have to say, and you, you probably hear it all the time, but you maybe don't hear it enough. The work you're doing is important. It has meaning. It affects people. Um, if what you're working on now is even 50% is moving is higher love, I know it's going to be great. So, um, yeah, keep your head up and... Uh, stay out of the Iraqi hospital <laughs> wait on a ventilator. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and thank um, you so much for having me on. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And don't be a stranger. And um, yeah, I'd love to have you back uh, when this next project is ready to be seen. So. For sure. And I'll send you a little, uh, I'll send you the pitch deck and uh, the sizzle or the trailer, the rough trailer to this. Oh, please do. Next Iraqi one. Please do. So we'll, I'd love uh, to see that. We'll get me on next time too. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Be safe over there.